Chapter 13. Enlarge your tent. Frank decided to ask a small group of chosen people to help him, but none were really musicians. Lord, give us great musicians, Frank prayed. When the news linked out that Frank Houston was starting a work in the eastern suburbs, there was a concentration in the city. Insecure pastors felt threatened by us. I'm not going to take people from other churches, Frank said. I want to reach the lost, and there are still plenty of them amongst four million people. You know that all the best people have tried to establish a church in the eastern suburbs and failed, a fellow minister assured Frank. Then I have a problem, Frank told him. When I got filled with the Holy Spirit, I dropped the word failure out of my vocabulary. While there were no Pentecostal churches on that side of Sydney, there was a vision Ministries, a charismatic organisation specialising in conventions and Bible schools headed by the Reverend Alan Langstaff. To us, that wasn't a church, but Alan wasn't happy that we would be so close to his work until God dealt with him over his attitude. He shared his experience with Frank, assuring him of his support. That day, the two men became good friends. The Easter of 77, Frank and I were ministering in Newcastle, 150 miles north of Sydney. It was here where I received my miracle. I'd spoken to a combined women's meeting. At the end, I fell to pray for the ladies as a group. As I did so, God gave me a spiritual experience so real that I knew these people were my people. There was also born in me a tremendous love for the city of God's calling. Three months later, Frank, Judith and I surveyed our parish from the, from the air as we flew into Sydney, this time to stay. What would God do in the city? We had neither car nor home, but this could not dampen our excitement. Maureen and Ian, our daughter and son-in-law, had preceded our arrival by two months. Their task was to find a hall suitable for meetings. There seemed to be none available. But this time Chris and Reverend Iton and baby Jemima and Peter Mitchison, the other members of the group who had agreed to help us, had also arrived. Frank decided to advertise a meeting for interested friends to be held at the Iton's house the first Sunday afternoon. Only our own group of eight adults and five children would meet for communion and a prayer time in the morning. Frank kept glancing from watch to door as time drew near for the afternoon meeting. Nineteen people came to hear him share the vision. We knew two of them. Henare and Gabriella, Gu Gabriella Gilbert, who rarely read religious advertisements, did so that week. They've been in our church in New Zealand eight years before. When Hanari said they'd stay with us, Frank knew we had our first great musician, for Hanari was a professional singer and entertainer. It was another miracle when we discovered a, a, a small hall hidden down the street. We tried to get a school hall and searched the telephone book for the list of auditoriums and no avail. This would do, but would the Wilhara Council lease it to us? They did, at $25 a Sunday. Christian Life Centre Sydney was underway. The first Sunday, in the hall, 40 people were in the congregation, including another professional singer and guitarist. Our orchestra was growing at pace. Frank was evolved to speak to a bunch of hippies, all new Christians. Amongst them was a pianist who played in a rock band. On Christmas Day, this group of young people speared in the church. Trevor King, the pianist, and a scruffy lad sat in the congregation for five weeks. He'd need to change a lot before he could be used in the church. Lord, send me an outstanding keyboard player, Frank kept praying. 
What is what is in thine hand? The Lord asked. Friend looked at his hands. There is nothing in my hand, Lord. Three times the Lord asked the question. Three times Frank gave the same reply. He wakened to the fact that the Lord was telling him he had a top keyboard player right there in the congregation. His pride and his and old concepts were preventing him from using what God had given. Didn't a fellow have to prove himself before he could be used in the church? Frank took a calculated risk. Trevor, are you going to play tonight? Frank asked him. I was shocked that Frank would let him play in the church so soon. Why? He wasn't even dressed properly, unless a black sleeveless singlet, jeans cut up above the knees and frayed around the legs and a hole in the seat revealing red underpants was proper dress. When Trevor played, I forgot his clothes in the glory of the music. God dealt with his dress code in the weeks that followed, and Frank hadn't said a word. He realized that we would be, would very quickly need some kind of governing body to help and advise in the administration of the church. I'll appoint an interim council with a clear understanding that it's temporary arrangement. That it is a temporary arrangement, he told me. I will not appoint men I do not know into positions of responsibility. It is easier to put men in positions than it is to get them out if they are insuitable. We will need to have a midweek Bible study meeting in our home. There is nowhere else to have them, the others agreed. Frank was sure in later years that God was in, in this for the foundation set in place and then continued throughout the church's history. No other church we knew worked the system then. With the growth of the work, the home fellowships extended, bringing a shortage of leaders. Lord, what am I going to do? Frank asked of God. Use what you've got, the Lord seemed to say. This made Frank look closer at what he had. Woman, that's who he had. He'd use them. At least the church, being new, had no preconceived ideas about women in ministry. This wasn't any problem to Frank with his Salvation Army background. If they had a ministry in this way, why shouldn't they use it? We must set our philosophy for the church, Frank told his council. Our aim is to reach the people of the city and to go out into other areas. In fact, let our motto be our city and beyond. The church would reach into the city, teaching and making disciples. It would reach out into other parts of the country, indeed into the world, witnessing to the lost and unhappy people. Frank always aimed at a balance between the two. Churches, which were only evangelical, tended to breed shallowness. Miracles will not stop you backsliding his stress, but churches which concentrated on teaching without evangelism often became introverted and stagnant. No growth, no life. The Lord warned Frank that all who came to us would not say, some would try to use us for their own selfish ends. In our first month that happened when a brother brought his dozen people to join us, he left when he realized that he would not be given leadership. His people stayed and we were blamed for taking them. God knew our hearts. Those who stayed were far more than those who left. The hall was overcrowded within six months. The police had a busy time writing tickets for illegal parking. Pressure from residents who claimed we made too much noise and the council who recognized the problems was one of growth forced us to find other premises. Halls were no easier to find than when we first began. Ian had a bright idea. Perhaps we could find a hotel convention room. We did, for nine months when the problems repeated themselves. Besides, Frank had a feeling that some of the characters starting to come to the meetings were not welcome in the hotel. The search for a hall was fruitless. We tried to lease an old church in the city, but when the dozen members discovered we were Pentecostal, they closed the doors behind us. Frank and Brian, now on our staff, saw a Tule sign on the wall of a building close to the hotel. An open door encouraged them to investigate the property. On the second floor, they found a 
lap with the real estate agent. The building had been empty for years, but with heaps of paint and elbow grease, it could become a suitable home for the church. Frank decided on the spot to take to the ground floor, subject to council approval for its use as a church. God had said, stretch your tent. We were doing that. To 13,000 square feet with 24-hour-a-day access and no rent until the place was ready for occupation in three months' time. The officers moved to the new building immediately. It wasn't easy working amongst sawdust and hammering as alterations took shape. On Fridays, Ian organized the volunteers to clear and sweep the foyer area so that it could become a sanctuary on Sundays. While even the foyer can hold 350 people, Frank was delighted. Volunteers scraped and painted. Sometimes their undercoat went on the top, a final coat, but it was all a part of the fun. Besides their labor, the people gave $45,000 towards the cost of the furnishings. Trevor King hovered round the new baby grand piano as though it was a part of the crown jewels. After two years, Frank felt it was time to bring the church into the Assemblies of God. He disliked being a loner with its inherent dangers. Already the Commonwealth Executive had offered Frank an Assemblies of God ministerial credential on Andrew Evans's recommendation. In the light of your standing in New Zealand, they told him, Frank had accepted the offer. Andrew was releasing the Australian Fellowship into freedom similar to that experience in New Zealand. You'll lose the charismatics if you become Assemblies of God, some warned. I remembered that we'd often been asked in the beginning, were we charismatic or were we Pentecostal? Call us what you like. I don't know the difference, I replied. Some thought there was a difference. The churches will be exactly the same, Frank assured them, determined to go ahead with the affiliation anyway. There were no differences and nobody left. They were all too busy reaching the city. The first part of our motto, Frank asked an enthusiastic young man with an evangelical gift to organize a group he called the Christian Commandos. The invitation to join encouraged participants to come prepared to sing, dance, preach and generally proclaim the gospel. Tell Sydney Jesus is alive. The first gathering thrilled Frank's evangelistic heart. Girded by two hours of prayer, the young people moved onto the streets of King's Cross City's notorious red light area. They decided to stand in a park to witness. This was homosexual territory. They were pelted with tomatoes and eggs until a 20-stone commando marched up to the fellow throwing eggs. I advise you to stop, he told the young fellow as he pushed his big hand on the culprit's chest. Scrunch. A dozen eggs still hidden in the shirt became a slippery mess. The police also tried to move them on. The young people would not be moved until they were ready. Then they marched single file through the streets, down one side and back along the other singing choruses all the way. There were Christians mingling with the crowd, waiting to pick up the interested sinners. It was until a local radio station's night patrol interviewed them that they were left in peace. With growth came other problems. The baptismal services became so frequent that Frank thought it a good idea for the home fellowship leaders to baptize people from their areas. Some immediately asked, what about the woman? What about the woman? Frank asked in a reply. Silence greeted his question. The woman took their turn without further objection. From there to serving at the communion table was a natural evolution. Even William Booth had not gone as far as that, for he feared that he would divide the movement. But Frank Houston had no such fears. It worked in Christian Life Center, Sydney in 1978. It still does in 1988, and our women are not frustrated. Our building was filling rapidly as the pastor encouraged the people to bring others with them. 
Church is not about buildings. It's about God and people, he frequently stressed. I hate preaching to empty seats. They cannot respond to altar calls. Bring your friends and your neighbors and your families to fill them. Yet the multitudes we were not reaching challenged Frank's heart. How about some Sunday night concerts in the town hall? Frank asked Trevor King now our music minister. You can arrange some good items and I'll finish off with a 10-minute sermon. The day of miracles is not yet over if you can restrict a sermon to 10 minutes, I'd said when I heard the plan. I knew that if I'd let me edit his sermons, he could preach them in a hall the usual hour, but 10 minutes seemed impossible. Frank was nervous as zero. Could we get a decent crowd in this 2,000-seater auditorium? From a dark corner at the back of the hall, Frank kept watch as people flocked in. The ground floor would be full anyway. In the audience was a young man, a member of a very successful rock band, tired and disillusioned, though he was by the rock scene with its drug and, and allied lifestyle. He didn't think the Christian world was what he wanted either. Why don't you come with me as a Christian concert in the town hall tonight, his father asked. Who wants to go to an amateurish Christian concert, David replied. But he did. He came. The choir burst into a lively chorus. A puppet slid down a wire to sit behind the drums as a prelude to the puppet show. Francis Greening, the soloist, soared to the highest note of Sandy Patty's song, We Shall Behold Him. This is really professional stuff, David told his father. At the end of the 10-minute server, David Moise walked boldly to the front of the, the other seeking souls. Trevor King was elated. Pastor, did you see... Who came on the altar call tonight? A number did. Yes, but one was David Mohees of the famous group Air Supply. Really? The information didn't mean much to Frank. David accepted the challenge of Christian and Christian Life Center had another top musician. The first part of our motto was being fulfilled, but what about the second? Ah, oh, Asia is only eight hours flying from Sydney. Let us go there with the gospel, Frank said to our mission director, Ian, who was enthusiastic. A burden for Malaysia sprang up in his heart. The Ramya boys, greatly influenced in Frank's meetings years before, were pastoring churches in Malaysia. They would be grateful for some crusades. The young men who went in response to the call opened their hearts and, to, and people. Unexpected opposition hit their efforts to help the Chinese and Indian nationals. No, not from the government, but the church. Finally, our men had to withdraw. Their crime, preaching in Malaysia without the permission of the Assemblies of God headquarters. No one had thought to let them know of our plans. Frank felt some were kingdom builders, but it was their own kingdom. Other countries welcomed our missionaries. Chris and Bevatan went off to Manila to the Philippines, determined to establish a Christian life center in that city as a springboard into the other parts of the country. Once established, Chris and the Filipinos welcomed our teams of specifically chosen people. Three Bible college graduates answered the call to work with the Atons in church planting. These men would work under Chris's supervision in establishing a new church once they had a group meeting together and a national pastor would work in the leadership with them. When the church was well established, the three Australians would move on to another town. Our vision for the beyond was being fulfilled. As the church at home grew apace, Frank found it necessary to divide the city into regions, each with its own leader. The home fellowship grew beyond the capacity of the area leaders to successfully minister to all people. 
You fellows will have to accept responsibility as pastors for the various areas, Frank told his men on the staff. Their ministry expanded the home fellowship until 800 people were attending each week. Once Frank had Christian Life Center on the move, other churches in the city began to grow. Instead of decreasing as a result of our coming to Sydney, they also experienced the moving of God's Spirit. New churches began popping up all over the city. Church growth became fashionable. Pastors discussed numbers as though they were all important factors. How many are you getting now? 2,000? I'm getting two and a half. What about you? The pastor asked, looking at the third. I'm averaging about 200, the third replied, embarrassed that his church was a beaker. How many are you getting now, Frank? They asked. I really don't know. I've told my men that they can count the numbers if they want to, but they're not to tell me. I'm tired of the numbers game. He did know there were too many to get into the auditorium in one service. That made Frank happy, for it meant that they were continuing to grow in spite of the crowds. Hawkeye, as some of the college students in New Zealand had dubbed him, missed people from the Sydney service. Dick and Lorraine haven't been in church for a few weeks, he said to me one Sunday after church. I wonder where they are. They're probably on holiday, I suggested. Frank wasn't satisfied with that explanation. He told the area pastor to find out where they were. They're going to another church, he said. Frank turned to their their departure over in his mind. You know, Dick and Lorraine have been with us for seven years. Church growth experts say that after seven years, people tend to grow restless and look for another spiritual home. I guess that's what happened to them. But I'm sorry, they were amongst the first in, in Christian life church. Again, the shepherd hard rued the departure of some of his sheep without even a goodbye. You must get to know the people so that you too will know who is missing, he tells the young ministers. When people move to escape their problems, they don't realize that their problem is in themselves and they take it with them, Frank often said. We lost people for another reason. No, we gave people. It isn't a losing game, is it? It is a multiplication by division. It has happened that way. Dad, I'd like to start a meeting in Liverpool area. There's something happening out there. The local assemblies of God has only five in it. Would you mind if the people who came into the city from that area helped me? Our son Brian, now Frank's associate pastor, wanted his father's blessing. Liverpool was an hour's drive from downtown Sydney. No, son, if that's what you feel God wants you to do, that's fine by me. The first of our outreach churches was born. They established with its own pastor. Brian commenced a Sunday afternoon meeting in Gosford, a town an hour's drive to the north. This meeting soon developed into a full-scale church. Again, another pastor took its leadership. A third followed in the area. We had about 40 people who drove for one and a quarter hours into the city every Sunday. As the outreach developed, Brian felt he should lead the baby church himself. I feel as though my right arm has been cut off, Frank told me. I knew he was missing the son, who was more like a brother to the ministry matters they discussed. God had Brian's replacement waiting. Paul de Jong grew up in the Lower Hut Church in New Zealand. He trained in Faith Bible College after doing evangelical work. He found his way out to the staff in Sydney. Surely God knew the future when he brought Paul to us. His business skills lay dormant until a new church was required. Once more... Frank began to see a place where young people, in fact people of any age, could develop their gifts and ministries for God. Brian, I feel God would have us establish a college which will combine theology with the arts, Frank said to his son one night. Brian immediately caught the vision. A great idea, Dad. How alike these two are. I thought as I listened. They think alike. They minister alike. Amazing. They tossed ideas back and forth until the pattern began to emerge. The difficulty would be finding someone capable of heading up such a college. 
the person would need to have the same vision and highest qualifications. The standard must be one of excellence. It was when Brian visited America that he found the man he believed would be just right. He phoned his father. Dad, I think I found your man for the college. You remember David Johnston, who came to Australia with the Red Letter Edition Group? Yes, I've been telling him about your vision for the college. Would you believe he has had the same dream? As far as any of us knew, no such college existed anywhere in the world. Sound him out to see if he would be interested. Yes, David and Mariana Johnson would be prepared to come. Within a few months, the International Institute for Creative Ministries was birthed round about the dining room table as a curriculum and staffing were discussed. All this would stretch the budget to the limit. Yet if the vision was really from God, miracles would happen. It seemed that God was stretching the church again when they were once more forced out of our buildings. There had always been opposition from the owners who appeared to hate Christians. Now they had been quite offered a high rental and we had to pay that or quit. We chose to quit. Why put money in the pockets of the heathen? Frank asked. This time we would buy our own building. That was when we discovered the scarcity of buildings with parking facilities, the size we needed. It must be in an area not too far from our present building. For two years we looked. In the meantime, the church had to meet in six different auditoriums. The French people fell out, but the foundations were such that the main body of our people stayed with us. Suffering the difficulties with the pastors. Ten years ago, we'd thought the days of putting up and pulling down sound equipment every Sunday was a thing of the past. Here we are at it again. Few knew the commitment needed by the team, who were by the six every Sunday morning, moving gear into place. What a blessing in a time when commitment seems to be a very scarce commodity. We thrilled at the giving of our people. Strikes, on-site payment demands by the unions and extra demands by the city council, even after they had passed the plans, made the cost blow away out of the budget. Can we be anything but thankful for the faithfulness in giving by God's people when many Christian projects outside the church thrust their claims ahead of their home base? Most of our people practiced the principles of tithing. They also gave sacrificially to the new building. The whole project became a great repeat of the beginning days in the old big building in Goulburn Street. Builders working during the week, services in one section on Sundays. Often men were waiting to start work on Sundays. Three months later then, we had planned. We dedicated the facility to God. Our staff, now seven full-time and two lay pastors, grew into a loyal team. Frank has always sought to pour into his staff lessons learned by his experience. Some of these men are already planning to expand into other essential ministries, exit ministries to homosexuals, loving care ministries to the needing, the challenge of teen suicide stated to be the highest killer of young people. There are also thieves around, as we discovered, when a volunteer worker's handbag went missing. The war against evil never ends, but God has given the church all the tools needed to accomplish the tasks, and Frank has used every one of them in this ministry.